you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Psalm 16. And if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are going to be coming up and down the aisle. And if you just raise your hand, they'd be happy to put a copy of God's Word into your lap so that you can follow along. And it really is a joy and a privilege to be here. My wife and I love this church very dearly. We loved our time here with you together. And it's really an honor uh, to be invited to get to open up God's Word with you. And based on the weather this week, I'm thinking next time, instead of me flying here, we should just have all you fly to me in Hawaii and we can have a service in the nice Hawaiian sun on the Hawaiian sand looking out on the Hawaiian ocean and it would be wonderful. Now a couple of years ago, uh, some of my friends and I finished our exams a little bit early and so we decided to take advantage of the snow and drive up north to spend a weekend at a ski resort. And so we, we pack up our stuff, we pile into the car and we begin our trek up north and, and everything's going great. The, the car is warm, the conversation is flowing, the, the snacks are being passed around, the music is loud, but as we're driving, a, a snowstorm begins to descend. And at first, at first it's, it's light, but as we continue driving, it gets, uh, it gets heavier and heavier, and so the snow begins to pile. And as it begins to pile on the road, the traffic begins to pile on the highway. And so one of my friends, you know, there's always one of them in the car, is thinking, you know, I could kind of find out an alternate route. We can kind of not obey the GPS here. And so he convinces all of us to get off the highway, to take the next exit, and to find uh, an alternative route. And he was absolutely right. On the side road, there was no traffic. But there's also no lights. There was also no barriers for the wind. And there was no cars padding down the snow to make these makeshift lanes for us. And so as we're driving, the conversation kind of dies down. The music kind of gets turned down. The, the snacks aren't being passed along anymore as we're looking out at the front windshield. And minute by minute, we cannot see in front of us. The snow is coming down so hard, we can only see a few feet in front of us. We don't want to pick up speed in case we slide into the ditch, and we don't want to slow down in case we spin out the tires and get stuck. So at this point, I'm kind of making mental calculations. I'm thinking, we have half a bag of Doritos and like three Cheetos. And we got four grown men in this car. So I gotta distract everybody, I gotta grab the snacks, and I gotta make my way out the car, grab my ski stuff and ski to safety, because we aren't gonna make it. But all of a sudden, there's a faint and indiscriminate glow on the horizon, and we realize it's not coming from the headlights. It's not the headlights blowing into the snow. And moment by moment, we get closer. It gets brighter and brighter, and as we come to figure out what it is, our hearts are filled with indescribable joy as we see the, the heavenly, bright, golden glow of McDonald's arches. <laughs> We've made it to the land flowing with Big Mac sauce, French fries, and junior chickens. And so in the middle of this storm, in the middle of nowhere, we find refuge in this McDonald's. And so we drift our way into the parking lot. And to this day, I don't think I've ever had a Big Mac meal and junior chicken that tasted so sweet. But this is like our lives, isn't it? We're going along, everything's going fine, everything's going well even. And you know, a storm kind of blows in. It's, it's pretty small at first, but you make one wrong turn and it turns into this entire issue. And this is really what it means to live in a fallen and broken world as fallen and broken individuals that the bills are going to pile up. Our bodies are going to break down. The relationships we have with one another are, are going to strain and the sin in our lives is going to uh, overwhelm us. But through all of this, we can find refuge 
in God. And in, in Psalm 16, really, we're going to see all the ways God can be our refuge and in all the ways we can find refuge in him. So let's look at Psalm 16 and read it now. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so as we study this text, I want us in our minds to have this one major heading. We can find refuge in God. We can find refuge in God. And really, if you only take one thing away from this message, it's this. We can find refuge in God. Notice with me in verse 1. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So, Paul, uh, so David begins this psalm with this desperate plea, this desperate petition, this desperate prayer. Preserve me, O God. He's crying out to God. O God, keep me. Protect me. Guard me. Save me. Be my place of safety and security. And while we don't know the exact situation David finds himself in, what we do know is that when he uh, hits the storm, he runs straight to his God to find refuge in him. And notice how David grounds his request to find refuge in God. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Notice that David's prayer is grounded in the fact that he is finding refuge in God. He's saying, because I am taking refuge in you, O God, preserve me. I'm taking refuge in you, O God, therefore preserve me. So what is he doing? Well, David knows his Bible. David knows the covenant promises of his God. He knows that God will be a strong refuge for all who find shelter in him. He's, he's rooted himself in God's promise to find uh, refuge in him. David knows the promise of Psalm 1830, that God's way is perfect that the word of the Lord proves true, that he is a shield for all who take refuge in him. David knows the promise of Psalm 91.4, that God will cover him with his feathers and under his wings he will find refuge, that his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And so David here stands on the promise of God by faith and trusts him to be a shield and a refuge for all those who find their safety in him. And this is exactly what we need to do in times of distress. This is exactly what God invites us to do in times of distress. We can be rooted in the promise that God will be a strong shelter for all those who find refuge in him. When the storms of life are battering against us, when darkness seems to be drowning out the light, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can stand on the promise of God and trust him to be our shelter as we find refuge in him. And so we can join in David with David. Preserve me, O God, for in you 
I take refuge. And really the rest of this psalm is just David unpacking and unfolding all the ways God is our refuge and all the ways we can find refuge in him. And so this morning we're going to see four facets, four aspects, four ways in which we can find refuge in him. And this is the first point. You can write this down if you're taking notes. We can find refuge in God by being confident in his rule. We can find refuge in God by being confident in his rule. Our God is a sovereign king. And we can find refuge in him as we are confident in his rule and reign over our lives. Look at verse 1 again. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And so notice how immediately after petitioning God to be his safe place to preserve him he declares the lordship of God over his life and at first glance it almost sounds like David is repeating himself I say to the Lord you are my Lord it would be like me saying to my wife I say to my wife you are my wife it kind of sounds redundant it kind of sounds repetitive but we need to look a little bit closer to see what David is saying here you see when we read the old testament in the English the translators have translated this word Lord in one of two ways. And they're two different words signifying two different things. You have the first, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I say to the Lord, this is the personal name of God. This is the divine name. This is the name Yahweh or Jehovah. This is God's very personal name. But we also come across this word Lord, capital L, lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D. And this is a title. It's not God's name. It's a title. It's the word Adonai. It's this idea that God is a ruler, that he is master, that he is sovereign one, that he is king. And so what David here is saying in this psalm is, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. And and really there's so much comfort and confidence that we can draw on in this very short verse. In these eight words, we can squeeze it and get all the juice to find comfort in our God. You see, centuries before David is finding refuge in God. God is calling Moses to be his messenger, and he appears to him in the burning bush as Moses is keeping the flock. And so the scene unfolds, and God calls him to be his messenger, and Moses, not too thrilled about this new calling on his life, he asks God, who can I tell the people is sending me? God, what is your name? And so God responds to him, and he says this on the screen for you. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, the I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so on the request of Moses, God uh, uh, reveals his name, the I am. Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this name is then used over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. And here in the context of Exodus 3, it's used to connote his covenant faithfulness. That God is faithful to his covenant. That he has been faithful to his covenant with Abraham. He has been uh, faithful to his covenant with Isaac and with Jacob. And he will be faithful to his covenant to the people of Israel to redeem them from their bondage. But as we look and as we see how the uh, the Old Testament unfolds and unpacks the meaning and significance of this name, we'll see that not only does it 
uh, connote covenant faithfulness, but on an even deeper level, it connotes utter self-sufficiency and the uniqueness of God as the one true and living God. It connotes that God is uncreated and eternal. He is who he is without beginning or end. He does not come into being or go into being, go out of being, but simply is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. All other things, not God, are brought into being from God, by God, who alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. The divine name connotes that God is uncreated and eternal, but it also connotes that it is that God is independent and all-sufficient. God is independent and all-sufficient. The great I am is not dependent on anyone or anything to be who he is or what he does. He exists in and of himself without any need or lack. He is absolutely sufficient, absolutely uh, sufficient in and of himself, not deriving any aspect of his being from outside himself. And based on the fact that he is uncreated, he is eternal, he is independent, he is all-sufficient, he is utterly unique, his transcendent majesty, power, and glory is like no other. This is the God who is. This is the great I am. And so this is the God David is appealing to. David's not appealing to some generic deity, some higher power. No, he is appealing to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who is uncreated, who is eternal, who is all-powerful, who is independent, all-sufficient. This is the God he appeals to as his Adonai, and this is the same God we can appeal to in our time of, of refuge. This is the God we can find refuge in. As the storms of life hit, we can declare Yahweh is king. When distress comes, Yahweh is master. When suffering comes, we declare Yahweh is Lord. When trouble comes, we declare Yahweh is Kim. Nothing in our lives is out of his control and sovereign plan. He knows what's going on. He has control over what's going on. He has a purpose for what's going on. And in his wise rule, he uses all of it for our good and his Glory. He is the absolutely dependable refuge. He is utterly dependable. He will never fail us. He is the immovable, unshakable bedrock of stability we can build our lives on in confidence that he will be our safe place. God is our sovereign king. And whatever trial you're facing, whatever storm has blown into your life, this God can be your refuge. He can be your king. God is our sovereign king. Yahweh is our Adonai. And as we find refuge in him, we can have confidence in his rule over our lives. But God is, David here is going to show us not only is God our king, but he is also our abundant good. And as we find refuge in him, we can be satisfied by his goodness. And that leads us to our second point this morning. We can find refuge in God by being satisfied by his goodness. We can find refuge in God by being satisfied by his goodness. Notice in verse 2, David declares that we can be satisfied in his goodness. Look at what he says. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. For David, God is the source of all good, and there is no good to be found outside of God. There is no good above God or apart from God, and everything that is good derives its goodness from God, who is the overflowing fountain of good. But notice here that David isn't merely affirming the, an abstract fact that God is good. He's doing something much more personal, much more meaningful. He's saying God is his good. He has no good apart 
from God. His ultimate satisfaction and his greatest delight is in God himself. He has no good apart from you. The cry of David's heart here is Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. David says, I have no good apart from you. And notice how he expands on this in verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Notice the few words David uses here to describe his satisfaction in God's abundant goodness. First, he calls him my chosen portion. For David, the Lord is his chosen portion. And, And this refers back to the land divisions in the Old Testament. When all the tribes of Israel were portioned out different kinds of land and different sizes of lands in different areas, all of the tribes got land except for the Levites for whom God was their portion. So what David is saying here is he's identifying with the Levites. Yes, he has all these blessings, but ultimately in the deepest recess of his heart, the Lord is his portion. He calls him his chosen portion. Notice he calls him his cup. And he says, you hold my lot. God is the one who as our sovereign king holds our lives in his hands. And notice what David says based on this in verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines, the boundaries, the, the shape of our lives are pleasant because God has determined it and he is a good God. And I want to I want us to notice something in the text here that's very important. Notice that as he reflects on God's goodness to him, he's not primarily exulting in the good gifts that God has given him. And David has been given many gifts. He's been given a crown. He's been given wealth. He's been given land. He's been given promises. He's been given victory in, in battle. But for David, all of these things pale in comparison with the reality that God himself is his abundant good. David roots his comfort and his refuge in God himself as his greatest good. David understands that all good things come from God and ought to lead back to God in thanksgiving and in praise. That we ought to, as one pastor puts it, enjoy God in everything and enjoy everything in God. And listen, this is what it means to find refuge in God. That we would be satisfied by his goodness. That we would say with David, the Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is my cup. He holds my lot. I have no good apart from you. And all the things we are tempted by in our times of distress, all 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 the false gods we're tempted to run after, none of them will satisfy. It is God and God alone who is a strong anchor for our souls and will satisfy us forever. And notice something here in verse 3, that for David, the goodness of God and the people of God are intimately linked. His exaltation of God's goodness in verse 2 naturally leads him to God's people in verse 3. Look at what it says. It says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. As David reflects on the goodness of God, his mind turns to the saints, the ones who find refuge in God with him. And notice how he describes them here in verse 3. He says, they're the excellent ones. This is a description of nobility. It could be translated noble ones or even glorious ones. It has this idea of splendor and majesty. David is not aware, is not unaware that God often chooses the lowly and the humble. He's not unaware that Israel is not the most mighty nation, that the people of God are not the strongest 
or the wisest or even the most just. But notice, with eyes of faith, looking out onto the people of God, he calls them the excellent ones. They are glorious. They are filled with nobility and splendor and majesty. And because he views the saints this way, he can say in verse 3, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And listen, there is no version of delighting in God that does not include delighting in the saints. There is no version of delighting in God that does not include delighting in the saints. We should have this mentality. We should see the people of God in this way that as we look out at one another, we can say with David, these are the excellent ones. These are the glorious ones. These are the the noble ones in whom is all my delight. And so David here is challenging us that this would be our view, that we would delight in the saints. And as we delight in the saints, they would point us back to God and, and grow our love for God even more. There is no version of delighting in God that does not include delighting in his people. And notice in verse 4, David now contrasts these saints with people who find their refuge in false gods. He says, the sorrow of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out nor take their name on my lips. And so David here presents us with a kind of spiritual law. And it's this, finding refuge outside of God is idolatry. And idolatry results in multiplied sorrows. There's no exception to this law. Whether you're in Canada or whether you're in Hawaii, wherever you go in this universe, there is no exception to this law. If you search out your refuge in idols, it will only bring sorrow and and misery. It's really like the law of gravity. You cannot believe in the law of gravity. You can try to operate your life as if the law of gravity was not true. And yet it will affect every day of your life. And the same is true with this spiritual law. You don't need to believe that this is true for it to be true. Idolatry always leads to sorrow. And we need to let this, this, this truth sink deep into our hearts and in our minds. We need to put the concept of sorrow and the concept of sin together in our hearts and minds. So when we're tempted towards idolatry in our distress, we know that road only brings sorrow. That road only brings pain. That road only brings suffering. We can go to them uh, in our distress specifically because they promise protection. They promise refuge, but they can never deliver. Sin will always bring sorrow. And Adam and Eve teach us this lesson. They thought their sin would bring them joy, but it plunged all of humanity into despair and destruction. And the whole history of Israel is them running after God and receiving his blessings, turning away from idols and experiencing sorrow. If God is the source of all goodness and idolatry is running away from him, then idolatry is running away from goodness and can only lead to sorrow. It cannot be any other way. Rejecting the source of goodness will only bring multiplied sorrow. But notice, not only do these false gods bring sorrow, they demand our total allegiance and demand us to give costly sacrifices. Notice back in verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And notice he references drink offerings of blood and taking their name on his lips. These are the sacrifices the false gods demand. And this is what false gods do. They demand costly sacrifices. The false god of success will demand you sacrifice your honesty and your integrity. 
The false god of possessions will demand you sacrifice your generosity and your gratitude. The false god of pleasure will demand you sacrifice your family and your marriage. The false god of people will demand you sacrifice your conviction of truth. But notice David will not sacrifice anything to these false gods. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out nor take their name on my lips. They are vain, they are useless, they are destructive, and they will be no refuge in our distress. And this is how we ought to be. That when distress comes and we're tempted by the, these idols, we know that they'll only lead to sorrow and find refuge in God who is our abundant good. And listen, some of us are experiencing storms in our lives specifically because we've taken refuge in idols. And that sin has come to blossom and only sorrow remains. But God, in his goodness, is inviting us to find life in him. He's given us his son that we can find life in him. And it's never too late to find your refuge in his abundant, abundant goodness. You can forsake all the vain and worthless idols and run to a good God who will satisfy every desire of your heart. His abundant goodness is enough. He will be our comfort. He will be our refuge. He will be our sovereign king and abundant good. And notice here in verse 7, he erupts in praise because we can find refuge in God, thirdly, by being instructed by his counsel. We can find refuge in God by being instructed by his counsel. As we find refuge in God as our king and as our good, he showers us with his wisdom. And notice because of this, David erupts into praise in verse 7, saying, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Our God is not only ruling over our distress as king and satisfying us as our good, he is our wise counselor. He is our perfect guide. He is our perfect teacher. And he directs our paths with his instruction. And so as we find ourselves in distress, we can run to him and get his wisdom and his counsel. And we find this wisdom in one of two ways, two main ways. First is his word. His word. God dispenses his wisdom through his word. Oh, all the counsel that is offered to us in his word. If we would wake up in his word, if we would go to bed in his word, if we would like to be the blessed man in Psalm 1, that we would delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, we would find so much wisdom in our distress. Distress. It is the word of God that revives us. It is the word of God that makes us wise. His word is filled with encouragement, filled with instruction, filled with promises, filled with commands and warnings. All of this cause us to find refuge in him. But so often in our lives, it's when distress hits that the dust on our Bibles begins to settle. We look anywhere and everywhere except for God's word to find a solution. And we live in a day and age where there's so many voices with so many competing messages. And this has always been the case, but we live in a unique time where now every competing message has a platform. And you can stroll down the, the app of podcasts and see everybody selling their idea. But in these times of distress, we need to find refuge in God's word. He gives us counsel in his Word. But notice, secondly, he gives us counsel in his people. He gives us counsel in his people. God's people, the excellent ones in whom we should find all our delight, the ones who find refuge in God along with David, they are the ones who can give us so much wisdom. 
Oh, that this would be a church filled with people who counsel one another from God's word, who encourage one another from God's word, who remind one another of the great promises and the great warnings in God's word. And, and on the one hand, we need to ask God for humility because it's very hard to accept counsel from the outside. We need to be humble to receive godly counsel. So often in our distress, we're, we're so in it, we can't see the forest for the trees. And we need someone on the outside who can see our situation and who knows God's word to speak, to speak counsel in our lives. We need to ask God for humility to allow them to do so. But on the flip side, on the other hand, we need to ask God for courage and boldness in faith to be the one speaking into other people's lives. I bet all of, every one of us is going through something right now that could use some godly counsel. And so we know people in this room need counsel. People in our small groups need counsel. People in the ministries we serve in need counsel. Would we pray that God would give us courage and faith to speak into their lives, to give godly counsel? And in verse 7 here, we're given a beautiful description of this quiet trust David has in God's instruction. Notice it says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I love the Psalms because they're so realistic. Notice here that David is awake at night. This distress that we don't know what it is exactly, this distress is keeping him up at night. But notice that while this distress is taking David away from sleep, it's not a fretful and frightened tossing and turning. It's a calm, confident rest in which his heart instructs him in the counsel of the Lord, of the Lord as he lies on his bed. And notice that David's confidence only grows in God as he contemplates God's presence in verse 8. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. God does not simply dispense his wisdom from a distance. No, he enters into our struggle as our very present counselor. And he will never leave or forsake us. He is present with us. Notice the language David uses. He is at my right hand. This is where God is. He is present with us. He is before us. He is at our right hand. And the imagery here is that of a, a soldier in battle who has his sword in his right hand and his shield in his left. And he has to be absolutely confident that the person to his right, whose shield is at the left, will protect his flank, will give him protection and security. And David is saying, that is where God is for you. And as a sovereign king, he will protect us. And we can declare with confidence, I shall not be shaken. God is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is a very present help in trouble. And this is the confidence we can have as we find refuge in him. He is our sovereign king. He is our abundant good. And he is our very present counselor. We can have confidence in his rule, be satisfied by his goodness and be instructed by his wisdom as he is present with us at our right hand. And now David, as he reflects on all that God is to him as refuge, he draws this psalm to a close, filled with hope of a God who will deliver him from his distress. And that leads us to our fourth and final point. We can find refuge in God by being hopeful in his deliverance. Hopeful in his deliverance. Because of all these realities that David has described 
who God is. Because we can find refuge in God as our king and as our good and as our counselor, the result for David is an explosion of joy in his heart. Look at verse 9. He says, therefore. And so he's drawing a conclusion based on everything I have just said. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Notice the language David uses here. He says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Notice the change in his tone from verse 1 to verse 9. A desperate cry, preserve me, O God, to now saying, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells Secure Because of all who God is for him as his refuge and incredible gladness and incredible joy and security flow into his heart and onto his lips. And so we need to understand here the flow of David's thought. The present joy of verse 9 is a conclusion drawn from all the declarations of who God is for us as our refuge in verses 1 through 8. And so he can have joy in the present, in the present moment, because of all who God is for him as refuge. But notice there's a, a second grounding for this joy. It's grounded also in the fact that he is certain, absolutely certain of God's deliverance from death into life and joy. It begins with therefore, and in the middle there's a for, a grounding. He's saying, because God is my refuge in life, as my king and as my good and as my counselor, and because of this great hope I have to be delivered from the grave into full and final joy, I can be filled today with gladness. I can be filled today with joy. I can be filled today with security. Listen, God does not just protect his people all throughout their life, only to abandon them at their moment of greatest need. When the great enemies of sin and death are coming to destroy, God does not abandon us. No, in both life and death, God will be our refuge. And so in distress, big or small, whether it's an issue at work, an issue in your marriage, or death is looming, God can be our refuge. We can be filled with hope in a God who delivers. And notice the contrast in verse 10 of what God delivers us from to what he delivers us to. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the place of the dead, or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our great hope is that God will deliver us from the grave and lead us to this path of life. And notice that the joy described here on the path of life, it's a joy that is full and that is lasting. Notice he describes it, in, the, in your presence is fullness of joy. This joy is full. There can't be any more joy. It's full. It's overflowing. It cannot be diminished. And some of us are thinking, well, maybe the joy is full, but maybe it's short in duration. Maybe this joy can only be mine for but a moment. But notice what he says. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This joy is not only full. It is lasting. It is everlasting. It is final. It is eternal. It cannot be lost. And really, this is the joy of God himself. Some of us have an idea that God is in heaven miserable, cranky, a miser, 
But God is sitting on his throne filled with joy. In the eternal life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is filled with indescribable joy. And that is the joy that is offered to us on the path of life. This is the joy that is offered to us in God if we would find refuge in him. And this, uh, this hope of full and final future joy can fill us with present joy today. This is our great hope that we can look forward to comfort and confidence in the midst of our distress. If God is our refuge, we will be delivered from this world in, of pain and sorrow into the world of everlasting joy. And so David, at the end of this song, exults in all that God is for him. He is his great refuge. He is his sovereign king. He is his abundant good. He is his wise counselor and eternal joy. One commentator writes, the refugee in verse 1 finds himself an heir of eternal joy in verse 11. And this is how the psalm ends, with this incredible hope in a God who delivers. But if we're honest with ourselves as we're reading this, we're kind of left a little bit hanging. There's a little bit of a cliffhanger because for all his exaltation in God, David is dead. David's body is in the grave. And not only is David dead, but David's sons are dead. And David's grandsons are dead. And all throughout the history of Israel, as century after century goes by, he remains in the grave. And seemingly this hope of deliverance died with David. And so century after century goes on and we're waiting. When is this going to, when are we going to be delivered? When is the great enemy of sin and death going to be defeated. And it's not, only, it's not only till the Apostle Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost where we see the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 16. Look at the screen. The Apostle Peter stands up and preaches to the crowd. He says, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him, that is Jesus, to be held by it. For David says concerning him, that is Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make known to me, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so notice the astonishing claim Peter is making here. That David isn't ultimately talking about himself but that David is pointing forward and writing about Jesus. And he goes on and he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so David ends this psalm looking forward, past himself, past his sons, to, onto this great descendant that would come. And he's speaking about the great hope of deliverance, which would ultimately be filled in Christ, whom God raised from the dead, and we can share in this hope, we can share in this deliverance as we find put our faith in Him. And this is the story of the gospel that the Son of God steps out of eternity into history. He is born of the Virgin Mary, 
into the line of David and he lives a perfect life and he goes to the cross to destroy our great enemies of sin and of death. And after three days in the grave, he rises again victorious to newness of life. And all those who put their faith in Christ will be delivered from the great enemy of sin and death. This Davidic Messiah is our hope. It is in Christ and in Christ alone our hope is found. It is only through Christ that we can find refuge in God. This risen Christ is our Lord, is our good, is our wisdom, is our deliverance. Everything that is promised in Psalm 16 finds its yes and amen in Christ alone. It's only because God raised Jesus from the dead that we can find hope in deliverance. Christ is our safety. He is our protection. He is our shelter. He is our refuge. And we can have confidence in Christ as he is seated on his heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father with all authority on heaven and on earth. We can be satisfied in the goodness of Christ as he is the ultimate expression of God's goodness to us. We can be instructed by his counsel as all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden in him. And we can be hopeful in his deliverance as the great Messiah who slays the dragon of sin and death and stands victorious in the place of all those who trust in him. Everything that David is exulting in God for in Psalm 16 is fulfilled in Christ. So I pray that you would lay hold of Christ, that in the storms of life you would lay hold of him as your great refuge, that you would see him as your great king, that you would be satisfied by his goodness, that you would be instructed by his counsel, and that you would find hope in the deliverance that is promised for all who put their faith in him. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come before you thankful that you promised to be a refuge for all those who find their shelter in you. And God, that you are a sovereign king. There is nothing that can happen to us that is outside of your control. And God, that you can satisfy us in your goodness. You can counsel us with your wisdom. And that each and every one of us has an unshakable hope that you will deliver us to life, to joy, to everlasting, in your everlasting presence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.